You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Hey, fan people. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee. It's because I love coffee. I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee, bamcoffee.ca. Their roaster, Aaron, is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan, and he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box. Hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee, and all you gotta pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. It is the first show of 2020. Uh, We're actually recording this on uh, New Year's Eve afternoon. Don't forget to subscribe and follow our show on social media at SpeechBubblePod. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. With me today is a legend of the Toronto indie comic scene. It's Fiona Smith. Fiona has been doing this for a very, very long time. Her retrospective from uh, Koyama Press, Subnambulance, it covers like 30 years of her career. It's pretty amazing. She's been published in Vortex Comics, Vice, The Comics Journal. Uh, she's doing her strip Cheese on Blogspot. Uh, she also has Cheese 100, which is a graphic novel from uh, the early 2000s that uh, chronicles the first 100 strips. Uh, You can't forget her award-winning comics on sex and gender, 
with the uh, lovely educator Corey Silverberg, who's a friend of the show. Uh, what makes a baby and sex is a funny word. Uh, look for that as well. Her graphic novel, The Neverwares from Anik Press in 2011. Uh, this has been amazing to uh, have her in. Uh, recently, she was part of an exhibit at the Hamilton Art Gallery. This is Serious, uh, Canadian indie comics uh, with the likes other legends, uh, Chester Brown, Seth, who obviously have been on the show before, uh, Julie Doucette from Quebec. So uh, check our, our, uh, our interviews with Seth and Chester as well after you hear Fiona. Um, Fiona, welcome. This is, this is amazing to have you. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I, I'm so excited to have you because your your work just covers like a breadth of, you know, so many different things. And you're so ingrained in the artistic culture of Toronto, like you're a sculptor. Uh, I don't know if people have been to Sneaky D's, but you did their legendary sign, that restaurant that would be familiar to people outside of Toronto, probably from like Scott Pilgrim, because... Right. Brian Lee O'Malley used it as a location in Scott Pilgrim. So, I mean, this is this is really amazing. Um, before we really get into it, though, uh, I always start with my guests' early life. So, where were you born? In Montreal. Okay, and what was it about your your early life that would come to shape who you were as an artist later on? Like, what were your experiences like? growing up I guess uh, growing up with uh, Catholicism definitely influenced the the imagery and also an effort to exercise that as a, as a young artist especially a fe young female artist um, what else I guess the duality of the culture English and French um, there's a lot of duality in my work um, I mean that's a pretty concrete you know connection to make but uh, I, I'm sure that somehow influenced influenced the work. Uh, and also um, being raised in a house that had feminist posters up, but there was not a lot of feminism being enacted. Oh, okay. So having that um, uh, juxtaposition and conflict um, is, you know, continued in the work later. Kind of showing that you're a feminist externally but not practicing it within the yeah, house. Yeah. Okay. Which I'm sure is was true of a lot of 70s um families. Right. Possibly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh it came up a little bit in some ambulance but just your experience at at Catholic school and going right. from a school that didn't talk about periods or, you know, puberty as far as women were concerned. And then going to public school and it being much more open. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when I was in Montreal, uh, I attended a convent school called Convent of the Sacred Heart. So an all-girls school run by nuns, um, although there were some non-nun teachers there yeah. and some male teachers as well. But um, yeah, for grades uh, 7, 8, and 9... Um, you weren't allowed to carry a purse. So those are the years that you would start to get your period or, or possibly already have your period. Right. And um, so it created this uh, um, 
secrecy around menstruation and hiding uh, your pads or your tampons and and uh, sneaking sneaking yeah like in your lunch bag so that you can use them at lunchtime or um, and then so in, in a school full of women yeah no, there wasn't a discussion outside of perhaps uh, you know a class where they talked about menstruation oh, but that yeah. might be you know one once a year right, right. and. Uh, and then later, uh, when I was 14, my dad got transferred to Toronto, um, with the the company that he worked for. Uh, and that was, uh, hugely influential for me as, um, uh, coming from Montreal and a very repressive home situation, but also a school situation, going to, um, art high school at Central Tech and uh, a school that's populated by, at the time, 2,000 boys and 500 girls. Wow. So, uh, and we're, girls were very open about menstruating. So this strip mentions somebody saying, are you on the rag? And I was like, yes, yay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> There's a sense of like freedom for you yeah. in that. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. So freedom, uh, yeah, on the menstrual front, but also I was... Uh, working on art for most of the day. I mean, there was academic courses as well, but uh, a lot of art and and also um, escaping the tyranny of my father and, and home life because I was becoming uh, a real teenager, like going out with my friends and becoming a punk rocker. And um, yeah, it was uh, freedom on a lot of fronts. Your father, was he like a sort of traditional kind of guy or um yes and and no like he was he was a university dude like went to mcgill and uh engineering uh student at when he was there and uh but um yeah just uh, super tough at home yeah okay um so did you always know that you wanted to be an artist from an early age i did I did. I mean, there was kind of three things I was interested in. Let, let's say in grade four, I made a, a note of it. It was like astronomy, um, which as I got older, I realized you needed to know a lot of math for astronomy. So that was like, I can't do that. And yeah. also, I was imagining astronomy being connected to space travel. And I was like, I would get car sick. So I was like, I can't imagine I'm going to go to space <laughs> with car sickness. Um, and the other thing was... Um, uh, archaeology, which was really big in the 70s with uh, the King Tut um, exhibition that was um, traveling the world. And um, and dinosaurs were super, super big in the 70s. So Right, because they were making like the first sort of discoveries, I think, yeah. back then. Um, in terms of like a lot of your art deals with themes of like feminism and stuff like we like we talked about, when did that start, like, when did you start noticing the difference between the way men and women were treated and, and you know, wanting to express that in, in your art? I, I was noticing it as a kid, for sure. Um, I would notice it in, yeah, the way my dad would behave and, you know, ruling a house of three, four women, right? right. Me, my mom and me and my two sisters, um, things like that we would go to church, but he wouldn't go to church. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, why isn't he going to church? Why do we have to go and get bored? Um, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? But, uh, uh, yeah, and, and uh, becoming an art student and uh, seeing the work that was being done there and hearing what my teachers were saying and and the, the work that I was creating, like I said, it was kind of exercising Catholicism from my system um, and uh, making works that that uh, critiqued um, traditional male and female roles mm-hmm. um, and, and not realizing I was making feminist work. So John Scott, the famous Canadian artist who was my teacher, uh, one of my favorite teachers at, at OCAD, in my last year pointed out, he said, your work is feminist. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I was already, you know, uh, moving into my early 20s and not really understanding uh, what I was creating and the impact that it could have. And um, a few years later, I, I truly understood from, I guess, learning about feminism. Right, yeah. Um, and embracing the term. And then coming up in like the punk scene, you already had sort of that rebellious ethos, right? Like, yeah. To, to push against that sort of stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. yeah. And also the DIY ethic, right, of... Uh, just making work and getting it out there in whatever form. So that was, yeah, that was part of it too. So you weren't as concerned about like publishing because you could just do it yourself. And, uh, yeah, you know, there wasn't like, I find that in mainstream comics, like still the standard is always like Marvel or DC in terms of, you know, where artists would like to go. Right. And then usually they pivot or, or find independent comics like later, you know what I mean? Right. But, you know, you had a different experience in the sense that like, you know, you already had that DIY ethic, you know, right away, right? So maybe was, would you think there was like less, less pressure in terms of like, I can just put out comics however I want. I don't necessarily have to be published by mainstream publishers to be thought of as successful. Yeah, but also my, my career route wasn't comics right. to begin with. Right. It was um, uh, being a painter and doing murals. Mm-hmm. So uh, comics were kind of an offshoot of that and a way of um, promoting my work uh, where and I, I always speak about how I would make zines to go with my shows, mm-hmm. um, my art shows, so people were able to afford a dollar fifty zine instead of a four hundred dollar painting right right um and uh and and yeah the the i guess my my entry point to to comics was as a kid i was reading asterisks and obliques and uh when we would go visit our our cool cousins in lachine in montreal they would be reading mad magazine um there was one summer we spent with them and i read a lot of ec comics Mm -hmm. Um, and then later in, well, in college, now it's a university, but at the time on Ontario College of Art, Mm -hmm. um, I was reading stuff like Daredevil, right? I was like reading Frank Miller. Frank Miller. Um, but then Mark Asquith at, at the Silver Snail would say, hey, check out, uh, Love and Rockets. Right. Check out, um, Dan Close. Um, 
and I go to the to Dragon Lady and see Chester Brown's Yummy Fur, his self-published Yummy Fur. Nice. So that was seeing seeing those works and especially Chester Brown's was uh, an entry point to underground comics and that yeah so I wasn't thinking Marvel or DC at all and doing my art you know art world life and doing comics kind of on the side Um, what is being a muralist like especially in like the early days like I don't know if people know but like you know, if you, if you went to, like, the dance cave, if, if you went to Sneaky D's, like we already mentioned, like, you would see Fiona's work, even if you didn't realize that you were seeing that you were seeing your work, just sort of on the streets of, of Toronto. So how does that work to, like, get commissioned to do these, these works uh, on the street? And how did you fall into that scene? Um, it's not as... Um, uh complicated as you might think okay so i was working at the bloor cinema which is now the hot doc cinema right which was a repertory cinema showing uh old old and new movies um back in the 80s and um there was a a scene that spilled out from the the bloor cinema like folks like seth would have been around there right and Mm -hmm. uh later chester um and joe matt um and uh so I, I worked selling popcorn but and tickets at times. And uh, me and my friends, everybody who worked at the Bloor, would hang out at Combos, which was this bar, restaurant, a couple of storefronts down from the, the Bloor. And I would go into the bathroom and I would graffiti in the stalls. Um, and I was starting to make a name for myself as, as an artist. Um, so the, the folks who ran combos, uh, particularly Andrew Kilgore, who worked with um, the Greek family that ran, eventually ran uh, Sneaky D's, but mm-hmm. ran combos, yeah. um, uh, it, were aware of, of my work and the graffiti I, that I was doing in their bathroom, which they weren't so appreciative of. Right. But... Um, uh, somewhere along the line, Andrew said, um, we're going to open a new venue and we, we want to um, get you to paint the live music part of it. So it was a two-story, like the current Sneaky D's, but it was at Bloor and, and Bathurst. Uh, and the basement was the live music venue and the main floor was the Tex-Mex restaurant. Right. Um, and that was like 87. Oh. And within that same year, I did... Um, Lee's palace upstairs in the dance cave, which it's still there. Yeah, totally. From 87. And every few years I hear it's going to get painted over and it doesn't. Yeah. It keeps holding on. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. So was this simultaneous with OCAD or was this a little bit after? Um, this would would have been after. Okay. And so did you always know that you were going to go to OCAD? Like art school was going to be a thing? We, yeah. Okay. W- once... Once I was in Toronto and going to Central Tech to the the uh, high school art program, that was just the natural place to go. But you had to apply, right, and get right. accepted. Exactly. So I did that, and I was accepted. Nice. What was your experience uh, at OCAD like? Uh, we've had a lot of artists in here have varying experiences with the art school uh, scene. Some of them don't like it. Others really yeah. liked it and learned a lot. So what was your experience with that? Uh. 
I skipped off a lot. <laughs> so anything that was like more a studio class was difficult because I wasn't going in and doing the work. Um, but uh, I had some very patient and wonderful teachers when I was there. Um, and I was the kind of student who was getting honors or failing. Right. Right. So it depended on, on the class and my interests. Um, so it, it was a really great experience for me in developing my work. I went in there thinking um, I wanted to be a, a photorealist artist. So like a Ken Danby, I don't know if you know this uh, Canadian painter who would do like photographic realism. Like there's a famous painting of, uh, I think he did a, a a hockey player and that appeared in McDonald's across Canada. Yeah. But he also did this um, painting of a guy in a yellow poncho standing in the rain smoking a cigarette. And oh. you can see every drop on, on the, the yellow slicker poncho. Yeah. Um, plastic poncho. Nice. It's like, yeah. And the, you know, the smoke coming off the cigarette. So that's what I, I was striving for. Right. Um, and I went to art school and discovered that is not me <laughs> and anything time I tried to affect that it just looked cartoony so I kind of went more the graphic cartoony um way your work has a lot of motion and vibration it almost looks like it's like melting and like psychedelic um how did you sort of find that style did it always come naturally or was it something that had to be honed I think it came naturally, but seeing Keith Haring's work was a pivotal moment. Um, seeing the poster that he did of the uh, dancer, uh, Bill T. Jones, right? that black and white and red poster. Yeah. Um, it, it was like he was speaking my language. Mm -hmm. So like filling in space, which um, now I, I often do work that isn't so rammed with... Uh, um, elements, but yeah, that's kind of my yeah, base. I, I noticed that like in reading Sonambulance, you see the line work is a little tighter, a little more crammed, and then there's a little bit more white space as you get later into your career, a little more solid black, like that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, like, did you recognize consciously that you were going from like this really tight, uh, you know, filling every part of the page to something a little bit more open over the course of your career? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're talking over 30 years, right, right? right? So it's not, it's not so instantaneous. It's, and it, and it depends on the context of what I'm drawing because, uh, let's say I, I graduated in 86, was mm -hmm. making a name for myself as a painter, uh, then um, started to do um, comics and illustration and especially with illustration doing commission work um, my style might change depending on who was asking right 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 and you said that you were really influenced by Chester Brown's Yummy Fur yeah and I noticed that you also got published by Vortex right, right. which he was which he was a part of did you come to that through him or uh through Bill Marks okay. who had bought my paintings Bill Marks and his wife at the time Deb Marks uh had been patrons of my my artwork and um somewhere along the way Bill was like what do you think about publishing a comic and I was like 
yeah. Mm-hmm. Where and where you were already doing zines to promote your shows at that point, right? Yeah, so he could already see that like comics was sort of a step, probably right. for you. Uh, everybody that I've talked to about Bill Marx has a Bill Marx story. Do you have a Bill Marx story? What was your experience with him? Um, mine was positive, but I'm aware of all the <laughs> negative stuff. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, he published my solo comic, Nocturnal Emissions. Uh, there were four issues. Um, I even colored some uh, NASCAR comics when he was publishing those um, under a pseudonym, Hank Hank James, good old Southern boy <laughs> yeah. name. Um what can I tell you? I just, you know, I remember going to when uh, Deb and Bill lived in the con- country for a while. I couldn't tell you where they were living, but uh, he was really into fast cars. So, like, you know, driving up to their their place in a snowstorm. Um, but it's not as media story as some of the others. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You might have heard. So what, like... You're into so many different media, like you're into like comics and sculpting and muraling and that sort of thing. And you, you've, you've lived as an independent artist for such a long time. What have you learned about the sort of ebb and flow of being a freelancer and an independent artist for those who still want to sort of be able to make it as an artist, but, you know, are seeing that it gets harder and harder as the, as the years go by and, you know, you, you know, your economic standing gets, you know, tenuous. Sometimes it's boom, sometimes it's bust. What have you learned over over that course? Um, that, it's, it, that it is really tough. Um, so I now I teach at, at OCAD. Mm-hmm. So I try to express that to, to my students that it's tough. And um, I teach comics, uh, which is probably the lowest paying thing in amongst the graphic arts right right um and the most laborious mm-hmm. um so you know it sounds very airy fairy to say oh you're doing it for the love of it but you have to you have to find what what drives you and feeds it that's beyond money because that won't always be there um and ebb and flow that's totally it right so you just have to stay the course and and um you know not um, think outside of what what is considered uh, a career path, right? Um, in a more conventional way, right? Mm. Um, and there's uh, compromises that you might have to make along the way. I don't think of them as compromises because they were never things that I had to decide whether I wanted to do or not, like have kids. I just always knew I wasn't going to have kids. Right. But some people have to consider that, right? If um, uh, you want to pursue a career mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in pretty much in any field these days, right? Right. Things are so tough, but especially an art career. Yeah. And there's certain things that you might have to draw that you, you know, that don't True. totally fulfill you in all the ways that you dream of being fulfilled but it's a it's a living right it's a it's a check you know what i mean yeah so that's kind of cool like you just find a way i guess yeah yeah and in the end um you're living the life that that you want to lead right but um you might not own a house or a car uh, you know but those weren't things that i was aiming for right right i noticed too that like so in your work, sometimes the the frustration of the freelance life comes through. Like, you know, there's strips where you're like on the phone with 
with a potential client who's like, oh, it's just for exposure or yeah. that sort of thing, or yeah. you know, where you thought you were going to get paid and then you d- and then you don't or whatever. So I guess you always have to have like backups for your backups kind of thing. Yeah. Like you always have to be doing like 50 million things in case four of them fall through or, or yeah. something like that, right? Yeah. And also if you want to have a long career as an artist, you have to um, be versatile and work different angles and mm. um, to keep it all afloat. So right. one, one of the biggest surprises of, of my career is, is teaching. Because as a young artist, I didn't imagine I would be doing that. And now I'm moving into, you know, 13 years plus at OCAD and also teaching at, at the AGO uh, mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and how fulfilling that's that's been. That's It's been amazing. Is it easier if you make a name? Like if you're like Fiona Smith and like people know you, does it get does it get easier you know, if you're you mean a what? legend in certain circles, like if people, if people know you as Fiona Smith and like they know your work and they know you as a brand, as a person, as a name, does it get easier to like get opportunities and, and do your career and, and that sort of thing? Um, it helps. Okay. Yeah. But, but less, less than you'd think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally it helps, uh, most times people don't know or right. they don't uh yeah yeah because the thing about <laughs> comics is like you're a legend to like a small group of people right of like, a small group of people of a small group of yeah people, right? exactly so exactly exactly um i noticed too like in the 90s there was like this big emphasis on you know memoir and autobiography with like chester and seth and like joe matt and stuff and, you know, you were, like, right along with them in terms of quality of art, but you didn't get the same attention that they seemed to get. Did, like, how did that feel in 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 the 90s? Like, they always were thought of as, like, the Toronto Three, but I would put you right up there with them, right? Uh, you didn't really do that much autobio, but there's there's, like, hints of it. You know, sometimes you do a little bit of autobio, you can see it in Somnambulance. So how did you feel about, like, I guess not competing, but in terms of, like, how that scene developed uh, and you being a woman and them being being men and them getting all this attention? Uh, it it was a different time, uh-huh. and I and I wasn't as prolific as they were. I, and also I had an art career, right, that right. I was... Um, pursuing alongside the comics so Mm -hmm. I always felt kind of on on the outside on a few points right Mm -hmm. like as a artist slash cartoonist woman artist um and yeah the autobio definitely was um a line in the sand right there is like the the folks who are doing that brilliantly um the Toronto three or the holy triumvirate I was calling them yeah um and uh and Julie Doucet of course in in Montreal and it was amazing that she was a woman who's doing this work um but yeah there was uh definitely definitely less woman cartoonists although um there were women making comics all along the way it was just maybe we weren't seeing seeing their work but um 
yeah, I just felt on on the outside, even though I and a fan of their work at the right. same time, right? right? Um, and kind of knowing them, but not part of their their social scene so much. Right. Like, did you want to be on the outside though, or? or? Um. Uh. That's a weird noise. <laughs> <laughs> Was that like a point of pride? I guess. Oh, um, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess I had aspirations. Like later, they became stronger right. for in regards to to comics. But um, I've always been doing a bunch of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I was definitely. Um, uh, aware of them and and they're moving moving up in the in the comics world but also like reading uh weirdo and raw um and casual casual in toronto which was kind of the equivalent of raw and, and weirdo and um knowing that there are folks who were kind of um doing what i was doing so people like and i'm not saying i'm in the same breath as as gary panter but like doing art, having an art career and, and having a comics career. Um, uh, yeah. So I guess defining myself a different, different way. Yeah. So you, you could see yourself a little bit differently because of the art career and then, and then yeah. the comics career as well, as well would sort of feed into it. Like were they symbiotic with each other, like the art career and the comics and the comics career in terms of how they, they fed you and, and you know, the makeup of it. Yeah. And, and also on the feeding tip, I, I was getting grants for my artwork, right? right. Not for my comics work, although there wasn't a lot of grant support back in the late 80s and into the 90s for comics, but that's quickly changing, right, in the last um, uh, five years or more. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, at the same time, comics are getting more respected. It seems like in Canada, the arts, like traditional arts, still get more grants and stuff like that. You know what I mean? I always feel like over and over again, every few years, people are making, like, the comics discovery. But it's been happening perpetually for so for so long right right you know like comics are here comics are here but it's like every like 10 10 years or five years or so you know what i mean it's weird yeah um so i guess like you're just you're just moving along you're doing your stuff and that sort of thing do you i mean you you did your first graphic novel in like the early 2000s did you ever have aspirations before that to do something longer form or you know that kind of thing so uh the the graphic novel is like 2011 okay 2011 so um yeah the um so like the early part of this last decade yeah that we were in yeah um I guess I've been thinking about doing comics again right. before that 2011, although I'd been been doing comics and they appear in uh, some ambulance. But um, yeah, I was thinking about doing a longer work, mm-hmm. um, but not really uh, doing the work towards that. Um, and if you think 2011, I'd already been teaching for um, five years, teaching comics. Right. Um, which was 
kind of a re-entry point to, to comics. Mm. So I've been reading them all, all along and doing, making them occasionally, but, um, it reignited a, a really true deep love for, for comics when I started to teach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so in, t- I guess, 2009 ish, uh, and press approached me and asked me, so it was a dream situation. They, they approached me and said, do you have any ideas for graphic novels? And I said, well, I have, I have three ideas I'd been percolating, but never had started drawing or writing or, um, and so I melded all three stories into one storyline and that became, uh, the never worse. So it's, it's a real learning experience, um, creating this book. It's for, for, uh, I guess 10 to 14 year old kind of age. Um, yeah, my first long, long form and it's not a perfect work, but I still love it. And there's lots of references to Toronto comics yeah. <laughs> in it. Um, totally. Yeah. When you, when you get hired to like teach comics, does that sort of, do you think, oh, well, I guess I'm a, I'm a comic person. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, does that, does that further define you? in terms of in terms of what you do or are you always also an artist and also a sculptor and also that sort of thing like could could you have taught any one of those other artistic mediums or was comics always where you were strongest um i i did teach uh drawing uh briefly right. when i entered the o- ocad system um through the Faculty of Art, but I was asked to, to teach what was then called sequential narrative through um, the, the Faculty of Design and the illustration program by um, the chair at the time, Paul Dallas, who I'm forever thankful to for asking me. Mm. Um, and I think I'd always thought I'd be a painting teacher, but yeah, I, my... Um, Weigh in was also thanks to um, Dave Lapp um, because he was working at a kids' uh, drop in art center. And I talked to him about being frustrated with finding work, getting paid. Uh, And he's like, Did you ever think about teaching? And I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. And he's like, Why don't you come and volunteer at this center in Regent Park? And uh, so I started that way. And that eventually gave me the experience to later be teaching university nice <laughs> so, so what were your first teaching experiences like was it was it trepidatious yeah it's very trepidatious um public speaking isn't a, a strong point right. <laughs> i don't think for yeah. me and um uh yeah being the the leader of of a room full of young people is uh daunting at times but now i'm getting older <laughs> it's getting easier and <laughs> yeah and um yeah and teaching something i'm passionate about it always interests me like how does it feel to go from like someone who you know grew up in the punk scene was like an independent artist is still you know very much an independent artist but now as a teacher you sort of represent the authority in some in some ways you know what i mean like yeah. you're the teacher you're the person you were rebelling against before, yeah. before, you know what I mean? How does that evolution feel to someone in your in your position? 
Um, it's it's definitely weird <laughs> um, to kind of disconnect and look in on yeah. it, but it's also um, a great privilege and a blessing to to be able to uh, impart what what I've learned through a completely different avenue um, mm-hmm. to to young folks, and it, I I hope the best thing that I can do is to make space for them to explore who who they are and what they want to say and mm-hmm. and their art. Right. So creating a you know a safe supportive uh, space. Um, Showing them there's different ways you can do you can yes. do this right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I noticed from your work that like, you know, when you do comics, you know, there's stuff like in every corner and like panels crowd out other panels. Like panel borders aren't always super defined or like, you know, they sort of melt away in the same way that some of your some of your imagery does. Um, how do you think about comic book structure? when you're doing, you know, whether it's a zine or a graphic novel or those sorts of things? I, I guess I think about it in a very conventional way and create um, some kind of constraint or set of default panels. And then I can kind of experiment away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it always, and that's what I teach too, right? It's like setting up um, a format is very useful to escape from <laughs> yeah. later, but also gives a, a structure to, to a work. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you say like, if, if you told me, Oh, you could do whatever you want. And mm-hmm. when I say that to a student, you can do whatever you want. Sometimes that's like the worst thing to say, because then you're like, well, I could do anything. I don't even know where to begin. Right. But if you say, okay, it's going to be a four panel, like the four Mark Liberté's four panel project, yeah, it's like it's a jumping off point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for tons of innovation and creativity, even though it's such a finite uh, structure. Right, because you don't even have to treat them as traditional comic panels or a traditional strip. You can treat them as like, you know, windows to another world. Or, you know, whatever, you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then content wise, it's endless, right? Uh, so. Yeah. And it's sort of like his approach to comics is sort of like more avant-garde, you know, to yours and that sort of thing. Um, do you, do you feel like more appreciative of that avant-garde style, that avant-garde way of approaching comics? Because you still you still don't see it as much as you see, uh, you know, like the traditional comics, but even like the indie comics are still very much traditional comic structure for the most part. So should avant-garde comics be more prominent than they are? I think so, but um, I think it's it's kind of happening. Right. It's like um, uh, the the current comics folks who are, you know, I mean, what Michael DeForge is doing with comics. Right. Um, and often using a really rigid structure, like a four panel for uh, leaving Richard's Valley, right? Yeah. Um, did I call it the right title? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'll There's so at, many of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll look it up. But like anyone in Koyama is really pushing yeah, that avant-garde yeah, st- yeah. style, right? Um, 
uh, yeah, I want to bring up um, Bradley of Him. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, uh, Connor Williamson. Yeah. Like what he's doing with structure and um, panel structure in particular and and kind of uh, deconstructing. Mm -hmm. But there's still... um, um, there's still a lot of finessing and, and fussing going on with with his work. But right. if you look at it and you're not familiar with more avant-garde work or with comics in general, you might have trouble reading. But it's like, yeah, it's the next degree of... Right. Yeah. So as the form changes and evolves, how does, for you, how has like your subject matter changed? Like what does... Now that you know that you're consciously doing, you know, feminist comics or that your comics were feminist, how has that idea changed as you've gotten older and evolved, you know, the sort of subjects that you tackle within that? Um, I, I think they're probably more personal. They're not so autobio, but uh, autobio themes are running, running through them. Right. Um, stuff to do with being in a female body and uh, kind of sci-fi themes around that. And, uh, and a lot, a lot of work. Um, and this is my, for my fine art as well, stuff around trauma and how that, how a body uh, reveals trauma, even if it's not spoken, mm-hmm. uh, which goes back to the, being raised a Catholic and right. seeing stigmata on Jesus <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. and on martyrs. Um, so yeah, being, being very, um, trying and also trying not to overthink it, right? Right. Like letting things just be like following what Linda Berry has to say about image and storytelling and just see where it takes you. Right. Right. And it's interesting because I feel like society is dealing with trauma at the same time as you are. So it's, it's almost kind of perfect timing. Yeah. Like with the Me Too movement and things like, and things like that, it seems like you're in the same place that everyone else is wrestling with, you know? Yeah. So it's very, very interesting. Yeah, and reconciliation, just it goes on and on. What so, fascinates yeah. you about, about that? Is it the conflict that drives your interest or is it the, you know, wanting to find like a common ground? Like what... What what fascinates you about that idea of reconciliation? Um, I guess yeah, common ground and um, uh, relief. Right. I guess. Yeah. Um, and accountability. Right. Um, which we're all all are who are visiting this land right right exactly exactly um we talked a little bit about like your your teaching career and what you want to impart to you know your students but you also have an audience of younger people eight to ten year olds when you're dealing with like your sex education books you know sex is a funny word and what makes a baby how is your approach to your art different when the audience is so young versus you know more I guess adult subject matter. Uh, it it means I try to look at at the work from their age 
too and um make work that's super accessible and and fun and and alive like really bring the characters alive mm-hmm. um uh and also um i mean it's uh changed my approach towards bodies as well as you know we've just been discussing all this like very binary um kind of old school male female stuff and like thinking beyond beyond the binary right um which you were already kind of doing in in your other work as well like there's yeah there's you know women with penises like there's trans people in your work there's lgbt people in your work so right. trying to trying to impart that to a younger audience do you have to simplify it more or i don't think it's simplification as okay. much as universality and i i iconic and accessibility is right. more the than um simplifying right so like cartooning right cartooning right. is like a visual shorthand that's different than doing the photorealist stuff i thought i was gonna be right doing, right. right so you make it a little more symbolic yeah a little less realistic but it is it is real too but it, real in a different way right real in a way that that's the way our memory works right one of the things, like, I emailed Corey about you, and he had some amazing things to say. And one of the things he said is, like, he thinks that young audiences really attach to, like, the motion in your work and, like, the brightness of, of how the work is presented and that sort of thing. What do you think attracts them? Is that is that by design that you want to put a lot of motion and... and uh, animation even though it's it's not animated per se but like in a single image it really looks like it could jump off the page you know you know what i'm saying um well i'm glad that it does (laughs) but um i don't know that it's like a conscious uh choice to to make it that way it's just my my style or um and uh yeah i just i I hope there's there's an honesty to mm-hmm. it and a relatability. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you always seem to have an honesty to your work, especially around like sex and sexual themes. Like one of the things that Corey said, he said, I'm not even sure where to start with Fiona. Who she is to me is this incredibly kind, generous, quiet person who moves through the world with a tremendous amount of gratitude and has an inner life and a way of seeing the world that is all about its messiness, its complexity, its pain, its beauty, its sexiness, its raunchiness, and its weird combination of being too full and too empty all at once. Does wow. that resonate with you? Are you are you trying to see the world in in that sort of complexity and in a sort of, you know, sexy, beautiful way? I think so. I'm I'm blown away by that. Right. It's beautiful and makes me want to cry. <laughs> but uh um yeah, that that duality, right? That's feels very true and yeah, where I'm coming from. Right. And I feel like I mean, it's the perfect time for you to be around and still doing what you're doing and being an example because I feel like the world is sort of is sort of wrestling with that complexity now, right? right. Like, I but I feel like 
it's turned into this sort of polarizing debate rather than people like embracing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like maybe it has and it hasn't, but it seems like it's like, you know, we're always sort of having a culture war at the moment. You know what I mean? How do you feel about like the place we're at? Is it just because of Twitter and social media and like the medium and like people hiding behind their computers that you're not getting, you're, you're getting sort of really progressive thoughts about LGBTQ people, but then also people really fighting against it and wanting mm -hmm. to keep the status quo the way that it is. Um, how do you feel about it? And, and what are you trying to do to keep that progressiveness flowing around gender and, and, and identity and sex and that sort of thing? I guess thanks to Corey and doing the work of these kids' books. Um, and we're working on the third one right now. Um, and what I do in class uh, can impart a lot, right? What I choose to say or what I choose to share. Um, yeah, it's hard. Um, but, uh, and it's terrifying times, but it's really exhilarating times too. Right. Uh, to work against the, <laughs> the shit storm that's out there. So, uh, I don't know. The, like the, the rebelliousness you've always had is still is still there and now you there's like a you know it's, it's cool to be able to like fight against this sort of thing right it is but it's scary too right right um yeah and how do you do it so if you're a shy person you do a drawing <laughs> <laughs> right yeah totally yeah totally so in terms of like you know doing and i guess you know you're sort of getting people at the ground floor like when they're a kid i mean hopefully through these books you're getting people where like you're you're gonna have generations that just accept uh you know people for who they are because they read these books when they yeah. were a kid and it was just like a natural part of being is that the, is that the goal uh, for sure yeah yeah and that's the brilliance of Corey and his generosity and vision mm -hmm. um and i'm just thrilled to be part part of it part of the journey yeah that's awesome yeah i wanted to talk to you about the exhibit at the art gallery of hamilton what what is it like i mean it just closed uh, as of the airing of this episode you know not that long ago a few days ago um how did you feel about being a part of that like you and like a lot of the other giants of canadian independent comic like together on the same playing field in the same exhibit respected and celebrated in the same way um it was awesome and uh yeah i mean i i grew up as an emerging artist slash cartoonist in in the late 80s and the holy triumvirate and julie were the the big four so to be included there um I would never have imagined that back in the 80s mm -hmm. that uh, things would have turned turned out this way. Um, and to be, it, you know, um, included with the other, all the, the cartoonists that are in that show. And uh, a few of them are ex-students of mine who I can't take credit for their work because they came into the classrooms with... Um, with a vision and a direction already before I could teach them anything. 
Um, but yeah, it feels very full, full circle. Um, and it's a historic event, right? To have this survey of, of, uh, Canadian indie comics, uh, on such a grand scale. Yeah. And like for you to be included with them is probably mind blowing. Yeah. And I mean, these are people that you sort of came up with, like, did, did you hang out with? Seth, I know that there's a occasionally. Strip, yeah, I know that there's a strip in Sonambulance where he's like he's like living with you or <laughs> yeah. something. Did yeah. that actually happen? No. Okay. No. <laughs> but he he went out with my sister's best friend. Okay. Uh, for a few years, and uh, um, the first issue of uh, Palookaville, both my sisters appear. Oh, wow! In, in it. Um, so yeah, we're constantly crossing paths, and uh, I have a good story about Joe Matt being at, at a party and asking him, "So how many times do you masturbate during the day?" And he's like, "Thirteen." <laughs> like, oh my god. He's like keeping track. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so yeah, and 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 Julie, of course, I didn't get to see too often. I mean, there was some there was. I think one or two very early days beguiling uh, comic conventions. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was just one at uh, the CNE grounds. It was a year that Dan Close and Chris Ware um, and the Hernandez brothers came. Um, so I would see Julie during that kind of a situation. Right, but, pre, way pre-TCAF and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but like in the last, um, year, well, since some ambulance came out, I got to go to SPX and Julie was there. So I got to hang out with her briefly, which was amazing. And, uh, and then we did a talk together at This Is Serious with Alana Trificanti, um, moderating. And she's the co-curator of the show with Joe Ullman, of course. Right. Um. And it seems like, you know, you guys sort of came up with, like, your own retrospectives around the same time. Like, you had Sonambulance. She released all of Dirty Plot. Yeah, um, which is so brilliant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just as an uh, object. Right. That box with two volumes in it. Yeah, that's amazing. So what's next for you? What what are you working on? Where do you hope to take your work that you haven't already? Um, I feel like you always get commissioned to do these like really amazing collaborations like that that comic about uh that bestiality experience that you got to illustrate that isn't your story but you know is the writer's (laughs) story like that's one of the patty powers patty powers yeah Yeah, that shot her story is like a shocking highlight of uh, of sonambulance but really honest and like you have your own honesty in like it's not always autobiography sometimes it is but often it's like a symbolism it's a you know like you said shy people make art you know what i mean if they want to get something across so talk to me about sort of the therapy of of that like like what are you able to do in putting like pen to paper um and and getting that sort of stuff out is it a catharsis it it is, but it's also um, uh, 
it's not a choice, right? Right. It's like it's an impulse and uh, maybe on the OCD ish mm-hmm. spectrum of like you just you have you have to do it, right? Right. Right. Um, and if you don't, then you're unhealthy and cranky and whatever, right? But um, uh, yeah, and I guess it depends on the context, right? So like doing the work with with Corey feels like a revisiting of childhood and like a uh, reimagining and a rewriting of it in a healthier way and just um, so uh, super therapeutic for for me and and on the selfish end of things, right? To be doing doing that work. Right, because you get to correct some things in terms of how you were taught or how you maybe not even taught maybe just stumbled across some of that subject matter right um yeah and and the work that i that i continue to do that's more personal um uh, yeah it's it's continued problem solving right and uh uh learning and exploring and um widening the world i guess instead of staying in the you know narrow claustrophobia of trauma or whatever so as a result do you feel more secure as a person than you did in in certain certain ways yes maybe not in other ways but yeah cool so what are the what's next like what are the things you still want to tackle um well one of the 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 big parts of my life like apart from making art uh is my long-term partner right uh craig daniels who's a musician and um my anchor and just amazing um artist himself right but musical artist of course Mm -hmm. and uh we did a a collaborative uh, animated short really brief like two minutes or something called uh party giblets um and we want to do some more of those nice. so, so in the future so i see more animation and really scrappy kind of animation like cut paper cutouts and not so much cell yeah. cell animation um yeah i just finished um uh i guess the uh uh creating um material for an animated short that was supported by the canada council so in the next uh, year or so, I'll be doing the post-production stuff and editing for that. And that's a five-minute animated short. Um, but it's probably going to take longer than yeah. a year to finish. Where do you think it's going to land? Um, like uh, experimental film uh, fast uh, animated short. Yeah. Like it like can go those... into to like Fantasia yeah. in Montreal. Um it could potentially be there. This um, last year, I had um, I was lucky to be part of uh, um, an animated short called uh, Albatross Soup um, that was directed by Winnie Chung, who's uh, a Brooklyn-based um, filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and so it, it played at Fantasia, uh, and so that could be potentially. Yeah, I I kind of want like the National Film Board to get back to doing those yeah. sort of avant-garde animated things that they used to do you know yeah I mean? like yeah like so the much... log driver was so famous and they used to do a, a whole bunch of things yeah like that just on tv all the all the time 
Yeah. You know? That would be a good place for some of some of your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I want to do another graphic novel. So I I have been working on one, but it's been um, shelved for a little bit because of the book with Corey, um, which we're probably going to finish by the fall of next year or, or the fall of the year that we're <laughs> talking right now. Right. 2020. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. So the, 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 you know, the third book of the kids book series with Corey is for kids who are hitting puberty and it's going to be more like a graphic novel. It's going to be over 400 pages. There, it's mostly com- comics. There, there's some full page stuff, but they're like, you know, a one, one panel kind of, nice. um, and, uh, yeah. And then my, my own, uh, graphic novel, which I had been working on, but we'll be working on again called Spin Barkite. Nice. And what, what does that cover in terms of, in terms of subject matter? It's, um, uh, there's, there's drawings in Somnambulance of this world called the Chimera's daughters okay yeah um and it's it's that world this world uh people by uh these different tribes of women and non-binary folks and how they're uh warring against each other but also the world is being pummeled by these uh asteroids and it's so it's like this kind of post-apocalyptic world um sci-fi yeah fantasy sci-fi yeah. a lot of like greek mythology stuff too yeah like, a little kind of, bit yeah yeah yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned off air that like you're really proud that your you know the the sex ed series was like the sixth banned uh, book in the United States. I mean, how does how does that feel? That's got to be a source of pride for you a little bit. Uh, it it is, but it also shows how necessary it is for it to to be out there that it could right. be uh, so highly contested. Um, uh, we're doing something right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, keep pushing against this. Like, yeah. I mean, that's that's what I love about your work the most. It's sort of, it, it moves the needle forward in whatever way you can. And, and I, I, I just really love that there are people like you out there doing it and forcing us to sort of reckon with, with some of these issues that shouldn't necessarily be issues. You know what I mean? We right. should just sort of like get over it and figure you know figure it out but you know you like you said it's really it's really necessary yeah awesome cool so is there anything else that you want to say before we get out of here uh there's going to be a show in new york at the society of illustrators in march that's um curated by uh kim munson and trina robbins called um women in comics looking forward and looking back and I'm going to be part of that show. Yeah, Tr- um, Trina Robbins, like legend of women and comics and the underground scene and that sort yeah. of thing. So that's really cool. And there'll be some connection to the Mocha Fest that happens in New York, this imprint. Um, so, so many people. I mean, it's it's endless. But there's there's a place in Toronto called Weird Things. If you've never been there, go there. It's like a, a cartoonist... Uh, uh, fun house of uh, meeting place. It's like uh, run by um, uh, artist Johnny Peterson, and half of it is it's a, a storefront, and half of it is like uh, uh, one wall is um, 
curios and antiques and found stuff that he sells. And the other wall is, for the most part, drawers and cartoonists and zinesters. Um, and we all kind of congregate there for, for events. So it's, uh, yeah. That's awesome. If you need to rewind this to go re-listen to all those people and all those places that Fiona shouted out, please do. I want people to come you know, over there and, and tell them that like Speech Bubble turned you on to these places and Fiona turned you on to these places. But uh, until next time, here's... Thank you for... Uh... Oh, yeah, I thought of somebody else. Oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, in the last year, I was mentoring um, an artist from Chile, Natalia Medina Romero, um, who's uh, just returned to, to Chile. And uh, she's an amazing cartoonist. You can find her on Instagram and Facebook. And um, there's uh, a comics anthology out of uh, Chile called uh, Brigida. Uh, and she's going to have a work in the next issue. Wow. So check it out. That's awesome. Comics from Chile. I know that we have some listeners in South America, so they'll definitely check that out. We have listeners in Peru, and so that's awesome. Anyway, thank you so much for coming in, Fiona. This has been an honor, and we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.